1: verses 1 through 16. I therefore, a prisoner for the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called, with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing one another up in love, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. There is one body and and one Spirit, just as you were called to one hope, That belongs to your call. The Lord, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. But grace was given to each one of us according to the measure of Christ's gift. Therefore, it says, when he ascended, gosh, I can't see. When he ascended on high, he led a host of captives and he gave gifts to men. In saying he ascended, what does it mean but that he had also descended into the lower regions, the earth? He who descended is the one who also ascended far above all the heavens that he might fill all things. And he gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds, and teachers to equip the saints for the work of ministry, for building up the body of Christ, until we attain to the unity of the faith from whom the whole body, joined and held together by every joint with which it is equipped, when each part is working properly, makes the body grow so that it builds itself up in love. This is the word of the Lord. God. Let us pray. Lord God, I, I just thank you for this word, for the call to unity that it has. And Lord, I pray for Joel today. I thank you that you have... Um, called him to to equip us, Lord, to to be to to be light into this world, to be who you are to this world. In Jesus' name, I pray. Amen.
0: Amen. Thank you so much, Sarah. If you have ever gone into the hospital uh, for some sort of procedure, they may uh, do labs in advance. And as part of that, uh, what is typical is to look at uh, your blood type, uh, to type you. Uh, If you have ever had to wear dog tags or have uh, certain ID cards in certain situations, uh, they throw it on there too. And uh, the reason why they do that is if you need to receive a blood transfusion, and Heaven forbid, but if you did, uh, you want to get the right type of blood. You see, you can't just give anyone any type of blood. If you do that, uh, things will not necessarily always work out. They may, but you're kind of rolling the dice. And it was a, a man named Carl Landsteiner in 1901 that first figured this out. That the way that our red blood cells are designed uh, to carry oxygen to our bodies, and the ways in which our systems work, each red blood cell may have a type of antigen connected to it. And if that antigen is recognized as uh, friendly, uh, or at least as part of the system, then things flow just fine, no problems. But if that antigen is viewed as foreign, then the body's gonna respond to that. Uh, You're going to have big problems, uh, even to the point of death. So you may give a treatment that's designed to be helpful, but it may not go so well. Karl Landsteiner ended up winning the Nobel Prize for that, by the way, later. He's an Austrian guy. This was in 1901. Later, he gets the Nobel Prize for his work. This discovery of antigens that help our body and our systems function the way that they should, uh, it's, it's not only true... Uh, that that plays out in our physical bodies. But the Apostle Paul is writing because in our spiritual bodies, we can uh, have a tendency uh, to view certain things as antigens, to not recognize them as a part of the system designed to be helpful to carry out the mission of the church. And so when Paul is writing to Ephesus, when he talks about unity... When he talks about the coming together in the shared faith that we have, what he's really going at here, what he's really after, is uh, to help us see the red blood cells functioning for the spiritual mission of the church as good and helpful. To not raise up new types of antigens and attack the things that are working to help the mission of the Church. For the entire history of the church, there have been challenges to do this well. Uh, In the first century, and this has persisted really through the last 21st centuries, racism functions as an antigen. Someone who isn't like me, uh, I may have a tendency to see them as outsiders. Instead of seeing them as a part of the church, I may go at them. In the first century, the the church was dominantly uh, Jewish. And so Gentiles or non-Jewish people who were coming into the church, uh, there was a bit of an antigen response to how they fit in the community. Raising the question that Paul is writing to address. It can be true not just with that, but there can be antigens of status, right? Uh, Socioeconomic status. People who are wealthy and doing well, uh, do they really have to mix with others? Do people who are lesser have a part in the mission of the life of the church? Both Jesus and Paul say yes. Wealth and status aren't some sort of particular antigen or lack of it that should be kept out of the body of the church. And so when Paul writes about unity, it's not something that we move beyond. Carl Landsteiner worked on ABO typing for blood now hundreds of years ago. And yet to this day... Uh, We still carry that same typing when you go in and have labs drawn. Paul's word to the church that we are a part of one body, one faith, one baptism, one Lord of all, that's not something that the church moves beyond. It's not something that we grow out of. It's something that we always have to be on the search for to ensure that uh, what uh, unites us is kept in the forefront of our collective minds in the functioning of the church. That in our worship and in the life of our church, that we don't let new antigens rise up where they shouldn't exist. And so we're going to look at Paul's uh, encouragement, exhortation to the church and to you and I this morning in chapter 4 in two points this morning. The unity of the body and foundation for growth. In the first three chapters of the letter of Ephesians, there's about 66 verses in our English translations, and in them there's only one imperative. Uh, So in the first three chapters, there's only one imperative. But starting in chapter four and in what follows, the imperatives, the commands for how the people of God are to live, it's going to start building and building and building. By uh, the time you get to chapter six, it feels like Paul is really helping to work this out. Here's what it looks like to live as Christians in the unfolding drama of God's redemption. It's a bit in the letter like a snowball effect. Like if you start a snowball at the top of a mountain and it's only the size of a baseball and you start to roll it down the mountain, it's likely to pick up snow as it goes down with the force of gravity and picks up speed and it picks up more snow. And by the time it hits the bottom, it could be a giant boulder of a snowball, right? Just follow me. You'll get the illustration. In the first three chapters of Ephesians, uh, what it looks like for you to uh, live as a Christian, it's a bit light on the snowball size because Paul is mapping out the height of the mountain of God's redemption. Just what he has done by entering into our world for you and for I. He's uh, mapping out how gravity works so that when the snowball starts to roll, here are the effects of that through the work of the Spirit, through the structure of the church community, that uh, the church and the Spirit's work in the church has value. And so when we get into chapter 4 and in the weeks ahead, chapters 5 and 6, the snowball is picking up speed with the imperatives of what this looks like in our day-to-day life. The challenge when you preach through Ephesians and you break it up is that people can forget. And and so I build in the structure so that you understand these things all work together, right? You can't have the giant snowball without having the height of the mountain, the forces of gravity, and the starting point of God entering into the world. And and in the same way, uh, the way that we think about our faith, we have to kind of always keep together that God calls us to grow up in our faith. He calls us to stop sinning in some very specific ways and to begin to put on virtue, but that those commands can never be taken apart from his work in our lives. Jesus' work on the cross. The Spirit's being poured out for you and me to give us gifts. Those things are always held together. Okay? All right. So in chapter 4, verse 1, I therefore this is Paul speaking, a prisoner for the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called. He has been, uh, he's reminded them of his prayer requests for them in chapter 3 and that he's a prisoner on their behalf as he carries out this mission. And he is now going to map out for them what it looks like to walk in the manner in which they were called. He gives them directions in the verses that unfold on how to get there. How do I know how I'm supposed to start living? Paul begins to map it out for you. You're to live with humility. The transition from declaring, I got this. I'm good. I know what I'm doing. To a dependence on God's grace in our lives. This transition from declaration of, I'm self-sufficient. I'm going to take care of everything. To a sense of greater dependence on, you are not fully in control of your life. That's what Paul means by humility. This is what it looks like to begin to walk in your faith. That you give up a a sense of full self-sufficiency for all the gifts and competencies that you may have. And that you live regularly with a reminder on the dependence that as much as you would like to be in control, you're not. But you know the one who is. That's life with humility. So humility is a part of this walk. Gentleness is a part of this walk. Gentleness. Some of you may be more gentle than others. A good way to get at whether you're walking with gentleness or not is how you react When you don't get your way, or when someone does something that you don't like? Do you react with anger or respond with kindness? Do you react uh, out of control or respond uh, with uh, some thought and with care for the people who you're interacting with? Gentleness is a part of the Christian walk. Paul is calling us to not react anymore, but to begin to respond with kindness and gentleness. Patience. Patience. What an important virtue in the 21st century for people who live in the metro D.C. area. Do you find yourself trying to speed up everything and everyone around you? Do you want it faster? Should it be happening faster? Why is it not happening faster? Or... Is there a sense that you can slow your own soul down? One of the great benefits, I think, of the women's retreat uh, of a Sabbath or Lord's Day, where you actually come to church and worship and rest, is it is a practice in patience. You have to set aside your normal workflow in life. The things that press in on you that you're normally trying to get through as fast as you can. And you intentionally, if you're here this morning, set that aside and rest and take up worship and refocus your soul on who God is and what he's doing in the world. That practice is a part of how you grow in your patience because all patience is at the end of the day is when you face a particular set of circumstances, you instead of uh, uh, just speeding up, hey, let's go, why can't this happen faster? You slow down and say, okay, what needs to happen here? And how can I care for the people involved? Patience is a virtue that's connected to walking the walk with which we're called. Finally, uh, forbearance. This is uh, the idea that um, Christians uh, don't just take the short view on everything, but that we can lift our eyes and see down the road of God's unfolding drama. It means if my life is going really well right now, that I don't overinterpret what that means and what God's doing, or if I'm struggling right now, that I don't overinterpret what that means or what God's doing, but that in both the good times and the bad times, I can lift my eyes and see that I'm a part of God's work in the world and this unfolding drama. Gentleness. Patience, humility, forbearance, they don't get old. They don't get tired. They don't get locked into a particular cultural moment. They are the virtues that Paul encourages us to take on here and now. They are the way in which we walk as Christians in a time and place where gentleness and forbearance and humility And patience don't always seem to be in great supply. Paul is saying as a church community, when we grow up in our faith, it's a way in which we signal to the people around us, right, we can do this because we understand the broader picture of what God is doing in the world. It is a way, in a sense, of reaching out to others, of testifying to what you believe and how it changes your life when you're just patient with them when you just uh, forbear through life's circumstances, when you uh, are responding to people with humility, when you show gentleness. The foundation upon which we do all of these things, Paul continues to unfold. He says, eager to maintain the unity of the spirit and the bond of peace. In verse four, there is one body and one spirit, just as you were called to the one hope that belongs to your call: one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. Paul's writing to urge unity within the church, and he's saying, "Listen, the foundation for our Christian life, it's built on uh, this shared work of God. So when I talk about one unfolding drama, that's what Paul has captured here. God's work in the world, the triune God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. The outpouring of the Spirit into the life of the church with gifts that now functions as one body to which people are baptized into with one baptism. It is a a, a unifying foundation that brings Christians together. He reminds them of this foundation so that People, including us, don't too narrowly focus on the differences between us. uh, What makes us special? or what sets us apart from those other Christians over there, part of Paul's challenge is when he does this emphasis of uh, the one body, one spirit, one hope, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, is to remind uh, the Christians, both in the first century and today, to not just to narrowly focus on what makes us special or distinct or uh, what we can pride ourselves in, but rather what we share what we share in this mission of God's work. That's what Paul's after. We have one foundation, and we work from it for growth. In verse 8, and If you want to participate today in Q&A, verse 8 and following could be a great spot to do that uh, if you've read your Bibles before. But I'm going to move through it fairly quickly here in the sermon. In verse 8, Paul pulls an Old Testament quote from Psalm 68. And if you remember from a few weeks back, in uh, the book of Ephesians, Paul is describing the work of God as the one who has uh, come into conflict with sin and death and brought about victory through Jesus. And here, as part of that victory, Christ, when he ascends, he leads a host of captives and gives gifts to men. Paul's reflecting on Jesus Christ as the divine warrior who has come and conquered sin and death for you and I. And he's saying in that victory, he pours out by the power of his spirit gifts for the church to use. Not silver, not gold, not fabric, not oil, not stock options, uh, not some sort of Bitcoin, but spiritual gifts for you and for I today as part of Christ's victory. Are, that is what Christ pours out on his people and he does it with a purpose. So if we share this foundation of God's work, and we share in Christ's victory in the cross over sin and death, then Christ pours out gifts for us to be united together in that victory and to use it. To use those gifts to carry on his story of redemption. N.T. Wright, a New Testament scholar, puts it this way, the gifts he gives are part of the great story of what he has achieved. Jesus has won the victory for us and calls us to unity in him. His gifts to the church are designed to enable and equip us to now live out the victory that we have in Jesus. This is a really important point that I want to sink in. I think it's one thing to hear as Christians that God has given us gifts, but really it's how we think about those gifts, and then it's how we use them. You could think of those gifts as like uh, parting gifts, what you give to people on the way out of a party. Hey, here you go. Here's some coffee for tomorrow. Or, hey, here's something to hang on your wall or put on your mantle. You can finally remember this time whenever you look at it, right? Right? It's just a parting gift, but what are you really going to do with that? It's just kind of to memorialize what has happened. That's not the type of gifts that God gives. Another danger is we could think about the gifts that God gives is like good sportsmanship awards, right? Everybody gets a trophy, right? Uh, So like, hey, God gives gifts to his people. And so we're like, "Ah, as Christians, we just try hard. At the end of the day, we get the good sportsmanship medal. Thanks for trying. Thanks for being a part of this. Uh, Good job. You participated. That's not how the gifts work either. The gifts that God gives to his church are designed to be used by you to participate in the active and ongoing work of God. That's why he gives them to you. To build you up and to build the community up. So they're not a parting gift to just think back about that time old when Jesus did something. And it's not a good sportsmanship to say award to say, oh, everybody gets one. Just be nice and try hard. You get a good sportsmanship award. Rather, he gives gifts so that he can build on the foundation of Jesus. So that he can build on the foundation in verse 12, he says, to equip the saints for the work of ministry, for building up the body of Christ. So we have this one shared foundation that we're operating on. But the gifts that God has given us are to actually start putting in work together. And here I have nothing but an encouraging word for mosaic. Because as a community over the years, in the times and places that we've been, this community has women and men who have taken their spiritual gifts and they have used them. They have actively put in work for the sake of the kingdom. And I want you to be encouraged, right? You are an exemplar, an example of what it looks like to not put your spiritual gifts up on the mantle so someone can think of that old time and to not tuck it away in the closet or throw it away and be like, yep, glad I participated. That was great. Now what's on to the next thing? But as a church, we are comprised of people. Is it composed, comprised? Okay, yes, that we are composed of people who are actively using their spiritual gifts to build the church, right? And keep going with that, so Paul says, right? Don't forget, when new people come in, don't let, uh, if they're incredibly gifted, don't let that threaten you as if, oh man, they seem really gifted, Maybe we should give them a hard time until they prove themselves. Uh, Don't sideline them. Don't think that, well, their gift's not like my gift, so maybe they can't be of help. Creatively and imaginatively think, how can they use their gifts to help participate in the life of our church? This is why it's always bittersweet when we send people out because they move or life happens or things go on. The, the bitter part is it's always hard to see gifted people who've participated in the life of Mosaic to say farewell to them. That's just hard. It's hard relationally. It's just part of the challenge. But the encouraging side is if we take Paul's view of gifts and the one foundation that we share and what those gifts are used for, then when they move to wherever they move to, they're using their gifts in the life of the kingdom there. And that brings us encouragement. Right, Because it's not a Mosaic-specific gift that can only be used here. It's a part of the work of one God and one baptism, one body, one spirit. The unity of our foundation on Jesus Christ is that we are using our gifts to grow up together. And that's what Paul effectively tells the Ephesians church to do, to grow up And I don't think he means it in a mean way. It could be read that way. But I think what he's urging them is to mature in their faith, to continue to take on life and say, how can I grow in gentleness and patience and humility and forbearance, as well as use my gifts to help build up the community? And how can I do that each day? Not that you arrive at some sort of state of perfection, but rather that you are fully participating in the life of the church. When they discovered uh, that some blood infusions work and some didn't, and they started to figure out the ABO, AB type of thing, what they realized is that there is a a, a universal donor, uh, a type of blood that doesn't have any antigens on it, so anyone can receive it. And then there's a universal recipient, a person who effectively has all the antigens, so they never recognize anyone uh, or any different type of blood as uh, foreign. If you were to carry that out into the work of the life of the church, Christ is the universal donor who brings gifts to all who turn in faith, right? What's unique in many ways about Christianity is that you don't have to go through a set of uh, ethnic or economic hoops in order to be a part. All it takes is faith, turning in faith to Jesus. He is the universal donor of redemption, And the church now is called to live out as a universal recipient where we don't see new antigens of people coming in because they don't have the right set of cultural norms or political beliefs or uh, economic status or education levels or anything. It can be anything. That rather the church begins to see itself as the place that welcomes in anyone as they work out their faith and point them to the universal donor of Jesus Christ. These calls to unity aren't a type of superficial unity where we wear the same t-shirt or we uh, put the same uh, jargon in our email signatures. It's so much deeper than that. This call to unity is to recognize the foundation that we're building upon as Christians, to let Uh, our lives be filled with the active practice of the gifts that God has given to you and to avoid picking out new antigens to separate people on that foundation. That's what Paul is calling the Ephesians church to do in response to God's work. That's his call for you and I to walk as we were called to walk. Let me pray. God, I ask that as you walk together as we grow as a church, as we care for one another and build one another up. God, I pray, let it, let it be marked by humility. Let it be marked by gentleness. Let it be marked by patience. And let it be marked by a view uh, for the long road ahead. That we will be dependent upon your grace And that we would be active with our gifts. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen.